the FT. Hello. This was the week when many Brits came back from the beach and woke up to the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean. On this podcast, we'll be discussing how Europe got into this situation and how the Financial Times thinks Britain should act now. We'll also be talking about how to multitask better and whether the banking industry is still just as broken as it was before the financial crisis. I'm Henry Mance, and we start with the refugee crisis. Concern in the UK peaked this week after nearly all the main newspapers published a photo of a dead boy, Aylan Kurdi, whose body washed ashore on a Turkish beach. He was three years old. His family had fled the war in Syria. Tony Barber, our Europe editor, said that the rise in migrants, both refugees and economic migrants, should come as no surprise to Europe's politicians. The Syrian civil war started in 2011, but one year before that, I remember talking to officials at the EU border control agency Frontex and to various experts at the European Commission in Brussels in 2010, this was, and they all said that they anticipated a rising tide of asylum seekers and economic uh, refugees from sub-Saharan Africa and other parts of the world, and it was going to present an almighty problem for the EU. So far, the solutions to this have mainly come from Germany. The country expects to receive 800,000 asylum applications this year, while Britain has so far received only 26,000. Here's Jivan Vassiger, our Berlin correspondent, explaining why Germany is prepared to act. Angela Merkel herself, the German Chancellor, has been very clear about saying that Germany has to be open to helping people who are in need. And of course, Germany's leaders feel that because of their history, they have a special responsibility to help people who are in distress. And the German people, I think, understand that too. The opinion polls certainly show that many people feel very favourably towards refugees. There are reminders in the German press that the Germans were themselves refugees at the end of the Second World War. There were large population movements from Eastern Europe into what we now know as the territory of Germany. So they, they have that historical context. And there is an understanding that Germany is today a prosperous and safe place that has the ability to help others. One opinion poll showed that 60% of Germans say their country could cope with high levels of refugees. But that doesn't mean that Germans are happy to act alone. I think German public opinion does depend on receiving some support, some sense that the rest of the continent is sharing the burden. In Bild, the most popular newspaper here, on Monday there was a headline saying the shirkers of Europe, and there's a big picture of David Cameron on page two of the paper, and it said, you know, these countries, Britain, France and Italy, they must play their part too. And I think over the next few weeks and months we're going to see increasing pressure to start off in places like Bild and then widen to be vocalised by the general population. So we are going to start to see some of that pressure. Now, the Financial Times argued in a leader article on Thursday that David Cameron should welcome more refugees to the UK. James Blitz from our leaders team joins me now. James, could you just explain why you think that David Cameron has got this one perhaps wrong? Well, it's not an easy situation for any British prime minister because immigration is a very toxic issue, not only in the UK, but also in Europe. And this is a government which has taken a very strong stance against increased levels of migration into Britain. Nevertheless, I think one of the problems for this government is that it's failed to distinguish between, on the one hand, economic migration, where there are some genuine issues and debates to be had, and on the other hand, the question of asylum, where you're talking about providing rescue and resettlement for people who are fleeing conflict and aren't able to go back to their countries. And I think one of the issues that's arisen is that the government has failed really to disentangle these two issues in its presentation to the public. And that's one of the reasons why it's 
I think, possibly losing public support. And what is the Cameron government's concern? Is it is it about the economic cost of resettling migrants or is it about sort of political unrest and feelings perhaps from those on the right that this is not what Britain should be doing at this time? It's not so much about economic cost. I think it's more that, quite simply, immigration is a very difficult issue. We've had the rise of Nigel Farage's UK Independence Party. The government has been unable to bring down the net migration figures because it's unable to control the free movement of European citizens into and out of the UK. And that has been the problem. But the reality is there is also quite a strong tradition of support for asylum seekers in the UK, going back to the, well, going back to the Huguenots, but also was very noticeable in the 1930s when Britain took 80,000 Jews from Europe. And that is the thing which has been forgotten, I think, in the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And what's the risk? I mean, it may be that the government changes its policy today. It realises public support has gone the other way. Mm. But if Britain holds a hard line on this, what are the risks? Well, I think the first thing to say is that the hard data shows that Britain really is being pretty mean in its approach. Britain has taken a relatively small number of Syrians from the conflict. I think the risk as a result is that if this continues, then they might start to lose public support. And Cameron is finding two things. One, he's finding that a number of conservative supporting newspapers are coming out against him, which I think is a worry for them. And the second is that some Tory MPs are also standing up and saying, you know, actually, my constituents think we're wrong here. And so I think there is a shift in public opinion happening. It's taking the government by surprise. And I'm not sure that it will be able to maintain the line it is for very long. And if Britain looks mean, then there's every chance when it goes into a renegotiation over the EU or whatever other diplomatic issue where it Mm. wants to get its way, that partners say, actually, no, you weren't constructive on this migration issue. That is exactly right. This has become an absolutely huge issue for Angela Merkel and the German government. It's unquestionably the number one issue. The Germans are under enormous pressure. Cameron wants to renegotiate Britain's membership of the EU and needs German support with that. So there's a lot at stake in terms of Britain's own diplomatic self-interest here. And that, I think, is also a reason why the government probably has to reconsider its position. James, thanks very much for joining us. Now, in the era of smartphones, we often have the opportunity to do several things at once. But should we? And in fact, can we? The FT's Sue Mathias spoke to our undercover economist, Tim Harford, about the realities of multitasking. If you watch a colleague in a meeting, trying to participate in the meeting and also trying to answer emails, you realise that brilliant people are reduced to imbecility because it is actually almost impossible to try to talk while also typing. But the important thing is we feel powerfully that we can do it. We keep fooling ourselves. Academic research backs up this idea that we're not very good at doing two things at the same time. For example, David Strayer, a psychologist, has done lots of work on uh, distracted driving. And he has this famous conclusion that you're about as dangerous talking on a mobile phone while driving as you are drunk driving. What's less widely reported is that it doesn't matter whether you're using a hands-free device or not. So what Strayer's really saying is, this is not about the fact that you've only got two hands. This is about the fact that you've only got one brain. You are distracted by your conversation. That makes you a bad driver. People are not very conscious of their ability to multitask. However, there is a way in which we may be able to multitask. Albert Einstein busily worked on several things in the same year and ended up winning a Nobel Prize. There may be a lesson for us there, said Tim Harford. While you probably shouldn't be on Facebook while trying to develop the theory of relativity, 
it probably is very helpful to have multiple creative projects going on at once. And so then the question becomes, how do you manage that without going crazy? For the answer to that, listen to the full podcast at ft.com slash podcasts. Okay, fine. Here's a clue. Write a to-do list. Finally, the financial industry. This autumn, banks, asset managers and others will hoover up the best graduates from across our universities. But it wasn't always that way. Here's FT columnist John Kay, who's written a new book, Other People's Money, about banking. In the finance sector, because my parents and teachers thought I ought to be an actuary, which was, as it were, the job for boys who were good at maths at school, which I was. But actually, in the main, the finance sector didn't attract very clever people then. If you didn't get good enough grades to go on to a good university, you might join the Bank of Scotland or the Royal Bank of Scotland. Right. And after 20 years or so, you might expect to become a manager. Uh, there were no woman managers, of course, then. No, of You'd course You'd play not. golf with your, um, with your clients and customers. And it was generally a relaxed environment and one based on personal relationships. The strange thing is that all these clever people didn't run the sector better. They ran it a lot worse. And that's the kind of the paradox which I'm trying to explore in in this book. So what now for the banking industry? Well, the financial crisis has led regulators to crack down on some practices. But will that actually help make the industry safer? And the style of regulation we have can't solve the problem. What we have, actually, is regulators prescribing more and more detailed rules, mainly of the kind which would have prevented or might have prevented the last crisis we have. Uh, But the truth is that regulation based on this kind of detailed prescription doesn't work in any industry and hasn't been working here. What we need to do is have a different style of regulation that addresses the structure of the industry, which I've argued is a large part of the problem. And how do we make those changes? My fear is that the only way we're going to get substantive reform is through another crisis, possibly one that's even bigger than the last one. In the meantime, the top graduates from Harvard, Cambridge and elsewhere will continue to head into the financial industry. The idea back in the 60s that your cleverest graduates would be clamouring for places in Goldman Sachs was something you just never imagined could happen. Uh, I think there's a question of, you know, what is the opportunity cost of having attracted a great many of the UK's brightest people into activities that don't actually add value for society as a whole? And you can read a longer extract from John Kay's book this weekend at ft.com money. That's all from us this week. Thanks very much for listening. Our producers were Fiona Simon and Feline Reyes. See you next week. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our World Weekly podcast, which is presented by me, Gideon Rachman, the FT's chief foreign policy commentator. Each week I discuss one of the main political stories of the week with the FT's overseas correspondents and experts, and you can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts from Wednesdays.